News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. A reminder here, there is a bus strike going on this morning, so you will not see bus service out there or see bus service for that matter. SkyTrain is running. Uh, Keep it tuned in here for the very latest as we let you know the developments and the impacts of that. Right now, though, we're going to talk about the U.S. presidential race because it took quite the turn over the weekend. We're one of the most promising and hyped candidates on the Republican side of things very suddenly bowed out. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is out of the presidential race. Global News, Reggie Cicchini is our Washington correspondent and joins us now. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. I was kind of surprised by how kind of suddenly this happened after just one primary and the caucuses at that. Yeah, really. I mean, even before, you know, 48 hours before New Hampshire, but probably because he was polling in such low single digits here uh, and there's nearly a month to go until the next campaign uh, coming in second in Iowa, third in New Hampshire likely would have left him the butt of jokes uh, for the next month as the conversation would have rolled around Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. Still, the fact that he did this kind of direct to tape uh, withdrawal from the race uh, on Sunday was surprising. What was not surprising, though, is watching him throw his support uh, under Donald Trump. Yeah, didn't even have like a press conference where he could thank supporters or anything or just talk to supporters or anything like that. Just recorded a message. It was kind of strange. Yeah. And I mean, look, he recorded the message saying hi from from warm Florida. He had been in South Carolina that day. The interesting thing here is uh, my colleague Jackson Prosco had been in contact with senior DeSantis aides early in the day on Sunday because he was supposed to hold events here in New Hampshire. Uh, and we, when, when Jackson asked what's going on for the rest of the day, the conversation went silent. So we assumed something was coming. But to do this kind of this, 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 you know, Twitter video that talks about how great the Republican Party is going to be under Donald Trump and that Donald Trump is the one that can you know, carry this party forward. It was interesting because in the last few weeks, DeSantis has really tried to throw as many criticisms at Trump as he can. So the flip, I mean, it was surprising. It was unexpected. It was mildly expected. New Hampshire right. is known for throwing curves into the primary race. And here we are with one. What went wrong for Ron DeSantis, Reggie? Because a year ago, it seemed like this was the guy who was going to beat Donald Trump. A couple of different things. Number one, yes, there was big promise behind uh, Ron DeSantis. He said that he was going to throw money into this race, and he did, but he threw it all in Iowa uh, and didn't focus on any other national politics except until he started to do that in South Carolina. Number two, he's a firebrand Republican who has put in firebrand Republican-style policies in Florida that don't really resonate with the rest of the United States, even in some of the most conservative states, but more so here. He really pitched himself to be an alternative to Donald Trump. But in doing so, he tiptoed lightly around criticisms of Trump to not kind of turn off the base. And people said, well, look, if you're going to just be like Donald Trump, we're just going to go with Donald Trump. And as he came in that second place, as he was poised to come in third in New Hampshire, he tried to dig in at Trump, but doing so still in a careful way. He was too aligned with Donald Trump to be anything other than a potentially second Donald Trump. And it turned supporters off. It seems to me that the the financial and strategy side of his campaign struggled too, didn't it? Sure. He was running out of money. There was infighting in the campaign. There was a lot of uh, uh, messaging kind of turnarounds. You know, 
there, there were questions as to whether or not he was even going to be able to finance this going forward beyond South Carolina because so many of his donors started to walk away after that poor performance uh, in Iowa. And if he did that again in New Hampshire, there was a risk that he simply wouldn't have the money even to keep his ground force on the scene uh, in South Carolina. And the only way to get through this primary process is to have money. You know, we'll have to see what happens with Nikki Haley after Tuesday if she starts to see her fundraising efforts dry up. But for DeSantis, it was a combination of there's no more money. The support is clearly not there. And he was too much like Donald Trump while trying to be different than Donald Trump that ultimately sent him back to the state house in Florida. Okay, so now can we say and then there are two like is Nikki Haley an actual challenger here? Well, she is. I mean, because they're technically there's other people still in the race on the in these, you know, low single digits and negative numbers that that aren't really registering. So it really is a two person race. And this really is Donald Trump's race to lose right now from all of the polls that we've seen. It's still kind of a plus 50 points for Donald Trump here in New Hampshire with a high 30s for Nikki Haley. What we have to watch here is the independent and non-aligned voters in New Hampshire. There are hundreds of thousands of them that do not register either with the Republican Party or any party. And she's really been trying to court them to close that gap with Trump. Trump supporters are eager to vote the independents, the non-aligned, less so eager. So we need to see what turnout is going to be. There's actually a push here, Simi, uh, by, by, by kind of um, uh, groups to get Democrats to register as Republicans and actually vote for Nikki Haley and then kind of temporarily return themselves back to the Democratic Party just to get the numbers out there for her. We need to see if that's going to help here. But ultimately, if she doesn't succeed here in Tuesday, if the numbers are bad, that's a bad sign heading into her home state of South Carolina later in February. OK, I don't understand that, though, because wouldn't Joe Biden do worse against Nikki Haley? Like, don't polls show that than he would against Donald Trump? Interestingly enough, uh, the polls, if it's a Nikki Haley, Joe Biden general campaign, Nikki Haley beats uh, Joe Biden in some polls by double digits. If it's a Donald Trump race against Joe Biden in the general election, Donald, uh, Joe Biden in some polls is beating Donald Trump. So Nikki Haley is trying to get out this message to say, look, I and only I can beat Joe Biden because Joe Biden was already the person who beat Donald Trump. Donald Trump lost in 2020. He lost um, Republican races down the ballot in 2022 because of his role in the race. So she believes that she's the only person who can do this. If she can sway those independents and moderates to come out for her, she has a chance to survive. If she can't, this could be Donald Trump's race because he may be the only person left in it at the end of the day tomorrow. Does he view her as a threat? Because he has certainly ramped up kind of the rhetoric and the nasty attacks against her. And he usually does that against people that he views as a threat. Absolutely. I mean, look, he was going after Ron DeSantis for weeks and months until the polls in Iowa showed that there was a bit of a momentum gaining behind Nikki Haley's campaign. Here we are now in Iowa, just the two of them. Trump is doing everything he can to throw the attacks towards Nikki Haley, both online and in paid TV ads. She's doing the same thing. She has a three-minute ad that's actually running uh, tonight, before uh, the day before uh, the election, uh, that, that kind of shows Donald Trump and, and the way that he cozies up to dictators and his failed foreign policy efforts, uh, really trying to make this about, um, you know, issues that she can be elected on uh, while Donald Trump just tries to kind of trash her and say that she is not the person for the job. So he sees the threat. His campaign sees the threat. Nikki Haley's campaign is acknowledging that they are the threat, which is Mm -hmm. why that they hope that they're able to get people out to vote. All right. We'll see what happens. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, talking about the dramatic change in the U.S. presidential race on the Republican side over the weekend with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, dropping out. This is Mornings with Simi. 
All right, time for us to check in with our Scott Chance this morning because we're talking about what it means to be a fan. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? I am good, thank you. Would you call yourself a committed fan? I feel like you are. Oh, I am a diehard uh, uh, Bleed Canucks Blue fan. I have loved them for forever. They're my only team. I'm like crazy only. huge fan You don't fan have like them. a backup team or? I mean, there are other teams that I like, but I'm never like happy that they win the cup or anything. You mm-hmm. know, I, like the only team that I want want to see win is Vancouver. Okay. So when they don't do well, when they're, you know, last couple of years were kind of yeah. rough. Yeah. Yeah. No, I still watch every game and I still cheer for them. And I still like pay very close attention to what the team is doing and the moves that they're making, mm. because I think all of that has this dramatic effect. And I like, I don't want to, you know, try to toot my own horn here or anything, but there are other people in the building that feel the same way. And we talk about it pretty regularly. And uh, it was like, we knew that this was coming, maybe not this year, okay. but like next year. Sure. Like there's just too much talent. Okay. There's too much sure. talent on All the right. team. Okay. You can tell he gets enthusiastic, right? Oh, yeah, right? I love him. Okay. But let, we're doing this because we're talking actually about Buffalo Bills fans because yeah. I have been watching, and they, they call them the Bills Mafia, and I've been kind of following along. You know, you always know about the Bills Mafia, but ever since the whole snow, like the snowstorm, and then getting paying the fans 20 bucks to come there and then just have the time of their lives doing it, I, I love it. I love talking about these fans. But last night, they took that to another level uh, with their playoff game the Buffalo Bills had their heartbreaking heartbreaking loss for them but I guess they were so bitter about it (laughs) that they turned off the cold water to the Kansas City Chiefs visitors dressing the hot water they turned off the hot hot water left only cold water there (laughs) so the Chiefs players had to shower in ice cold water after winning that game yeah and I was like that is another level of taking fandom seriously oh for sure it almost sounds like something like it's almost unbelievable, but then when you think about Buffalo and the city and the team and the fans there, then it's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's a funny story. Uh, I also love the story. Patrick Mahomes saw uh, like a fan in the stands that was wearing a Mahomes jersey, so he went over there to like shake hands and you know give the kid an autograph or whatever. And the fans just started pelting him with snowballs, and he, he like it. it just it's so. Um, you know, it's cruel and it's like uh, taunting and stuff, but whatever. Like, the Chiefs are amazing and they're probably going to go to the Super Bowl. It, you know, I mean, God so bless those fans de- throwing snowballs. With deal like, with it. Like, yeah. yeah. And they're, come on, these are diehard fans. They came out in a snowstorm to, like, the uh, heavy yes. duty snow to watch yes. their team. That is a diehard fan. Yes. It's not like they're, I mean, big deal, Patrick Mahomes. You got hit by some snowballs and you had to have a cold shower. Sorry. Sorry, you Princess. You still won the game. Yeah, exactly. And now you, you sound you know, like, like a Buffalo Bills fan. So the other reason why we're talking about this is that I recently read a story about how, the, like for the LA Clippers, I would imagine it's pretty challenging. This is the NBA team, the LA Clippers. Yes. Challenging to be in the same city where your fandom is probably de- defined by being a Lakers fan. Absolutely. And so they're, they right now they share an arena. They share Crypto.com, formerly Staples yes. Center. The Clippers are building their new owners, not new owner, but their owner, Steve Ballmer, building them a whole new arena. And so they're moving into this fancy arena on their own, but they have some new rules for fans on this. This is fascinating. Yeah, there's going to be a section of the stands that's it's it's called the wall where you essentially have to register yourself as a L.A. based Clippers fan and only Clippers fans are allowed to sit in those seats. Like if you want to put those tickets on marketplace or sell, like you cannot do it unless they're going to another right. registered Clippers 
fan. So mm-hmm. if you showed up with like a Lakers jersey, you wouldn't be allowed to sit there. Not only would you not be allowed to sit there, if those tickets were bought, like you, those are season's tickets holders who will be allowed to sit in that section only. And if you were the season's ticket holder who sold your tickets to somebody who showed up with the opposing team's jersey, they will take your tickets away from you. So you have to sign an agreement that only Clippers fans are allowed to sit in that one section. Yeah, I I love this stuff. Do I you? Think, I feel like that's going a little too far. No, I think that it, it makes um, the the game and sport and the experience of going to a game more uh, as it makes fans invest more and it makes you more sort of engaged and I also, like, as much as I am a Canucks fan and a fan of the organization and everything, there was a thread on Reddit just the other day of like, why is there always so many empty seats in Rogers Arena? Well, I'll tell you why, because corporations buy up big blocks of tickets to give away, and then no one ends up using the tickets, and real fans don't get to go. So something like this is like the opposite of that, where they're encouraging fandom. Well, to me, that's, a, that's an organizational issue, right? Like, sure. if you want more fans to go, then make sure that there are cheaper level seats so that more fans, regardless of the price point, Fair. can come to the game. I just think they're, like, they're encouraging fandom. They're encouraging people to get into it. Hey, you're going to be sitting in a section where everyone is a fan, like you are. How fun is that going to be? This is like where you want to be. You know, I think it's sort of, it drives that atmosphere. I I will agree with that. And I think you're right. Then teams like the Canucks can probably learn a lesson from that. I know there's people who always complain, like for instance, when the Leafs were in town, so many Leafs jerseys. Well, sure. That's kind of part of the part of the fun. I went to a Boston Red Sox game, not last summer, but the summer before at Fenway. Yeah. They were playing the Toronto Blue Jays. And I would say half of the place was Toronto Blue Jays fans. Yeah. Mariners games are like that, too. When the Blue Jays play there, all sure. all the stands is filled with Blue Jays fans from here that go down to see an MLB game because that's the only game that people here go to see. Right. MLB so if the team. If the Mariners said, no, 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 we can't have the opposing team fans sitting in this one section. Uh, it's just one section. I think like it's not like it's the, the whole section place. with the best. It's like it's like directly in the line of sight. Like it's a good section that they have built this wall for the LA Clippers fans. Yeah. And I think you do want your, you know, the people who are the most diehard fans to have the best seats. Like I think that may, and perhaps it will you also work for the players. You, you know, you actually struck on something there. And I think that's something for the Vancouver Canucks to consider is to have a lower price section for true diehard Canucks fans and Canucks yeah. fans only. Yeah. And you can't know, wear an opposing team's Jersey in this section. You always have a place to pan the camera to it. The, the players well, the talk idea, about right? how, yeah, they'll, they react to the, energy in the in the room so if like a lot of energy huh. is coming off this section and players feed off of that I, I love when arenas and teams do stuff like this all right well it's something for the Canucks to think about if you want to weigh in on that what do you think is that a good idea or is that fair simi at cknw.com thank you scott you got it this is mornings with simi Right, a reminder there, there is a bus strike going on right now. There is no bus service or C-bus service for 48 hours. And we're going to talk more about that this morning with the help of Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, so what is the government saying about this? Well, on Friday, the Labour Minister, Harry Baines, said the best deals are the ones negotiated at the table. I think we can all agree with that. It's just a question how long it takes. Uh, He also said he was confident that the parties would get back to the table with a little bit of help from Vince Reddy, the famous mediator, and he was hopeful that everything would be settled by today. Well, we know that didn't happen. 
Um, but the message from Harry Baines and the New Democrats is pretty consistent on this kind of thing. This government does not believe in intervening in labor disputes to settle them. It, it does send in help and advisors and all sorts of things and encourage, but ideologically, New Democrats are opposed to intervening to settle labor disputes. And Simi, um, their view is, I mean, first of all, they're pro-labor, so labor doesn't like intervention, so they don't like that. But in addition to that, the government believes that if you start making it a habit of stepping in to settle labor disputes and imposing settlements, um, the parties have no incentive to bargain. They think, ah, well, you know, we don't need to bargain. The government will step in and settle this sooner or later. So that's where the government stands. Don't sit around waiting for government intervention on this one. Okay, because the last two strikes that involved transit, uh, they went quite a ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the New Democrats' willingness to ride this out has already been tested twice. So, And both times they sent in Vince Reddy to try to sort things out, and he managed to, but it took a long time. So you had the Fraser Valley dispute, transit dispute in 2022. That one holds the record. Sorry, that's the, the sea to sky in 2022. That one holds the record 136 days. I can, I'm sure I'm really cheering people up this morning. Uh, Fraser Valley last year, New Democrats let it go 124 days. I mean, I have to think that the people who ride transit are more skew in the direction of being NDP supporters, both demographically in, ter in terms of age and economically in terms of how they vote. Not everybody, but it skews that way. But government still didn't intervene in either of those disputes. Now, Simi, you and I might say, well, see the sky and Fraser Valley, that's not a lot of people there that take those services. I'm sure if you were one of the people who takes them, you don't feel that, but the government didn't intervene. Uh, if this thing escalates and takes stretches more than 48 hours, the next dispute, or if it spills over to SkyTrain, and there's, a, as you know, a hearing at the Labor Board today about that, maybe the pressure will be greater on the government. But at the moment, the New Democrats are selling all, sending all the messages they usually do. We don't believe in intervening. We're not going to intervene. Get back to the table, talk in front of Vince Reddy, and get this thing settled. Okay. And as you mentioned, though, Vince Reddy did get involved on the on the weekend, as a matter of fact, but it sounds like they made no progress. <laughs> well, he is a miracle worker, but even miracles take time is, yes. the, is the thing. I mean, he has that reputation that he eventually goes in and tells the two sides often what they don't want to hear and tells them where he thinks the meeting ground is between them. But, you know, as I said, it, it, it took a long time. He wasn't there the whole time with the Sea the Sky or the Fraser Valley dispute. He did intervene. He did come up with a solution. But those disputes went on a long time before we finally got the settlements. All right. Well, that doesn't bode well for commuters out there today who need that bus service and are finding it is not there. There is a bus strike for 48 hours. Announcement this morning, actually, from the federal government, where Immigration Minister Mark Miller has announced that the government's going to be capping the number of international study visas that it issues. In fact, for this year, it will be a real number reduction by essentially 35 percent. And that's something that the provinces are now going to have to deal with. So for more on that, we're joined now by Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. So, Vaughn, it sounds like this was a bit of a surprise. 
Uh, the BC government was caught by surprise that this was coming last week, and they were not happy about it. The Premier and the Housing Minister both said Ottawa should not do this unilaterally. It should consult with the provinces. They said a cap is a bad idea because it's too blunt an instrument. It'll catch all kinds of people we want as well as some bad actors. But, I mean, they'll be digesting this news this morning. A one-third reduction is a pretty severe cap, and it will disproportionately affect British Columbia because BC has seen a surge in international students. I think the most recent quarter for which we have numbers, so that would be like last fall, <clears throat> uh, triple the number of the previous record. So we're seeing a surge of these. And look, the federal minister's view has been, Simi, that the provinces are at fault. They are not policing to make sure that these international students, and put quote marks around some of them, are actually students. They're coming here, going to private degree diploma mills, and then going to work, and then applying for permanent resident status. So I don't think there's an awful lot of a sympathy in the federal level. Clearly not, because they've just announced this, and it's a big cap of reducing yeah. the number by a third. It really is. So I guess that what they're saying is they want the provinces to better manage some of those diploma yeah. mills that you mentioned there, saying, listen, you guys are responsible for regulating those things, and you're not doing a good enough job. That is very much the message from Ottawa, and the pushback from the province, from both the Premier, uh, David Eby, and from Ravi Kalan, the housing minister, is... Come on, there's all kinds of people that are, their families are putting together a lot of money. They're sending their children here uh, to get an education. Yes, uh, they may want to stay after that, but that's the kind of people we want as well. There are skill shortages. There are all kinds of reasons for having it. I, the only, uh, and, and as a result, the province's line is you're going to hit an awful lot of legitimate people along with a few bad actors. That's the province's view, a few bad actors. I see, and again, I think the province will be digesting the federal announcement this morning. I see they're making exceptions for graduate studies, PhDs, people that, you know, we want in high tech and things like that. So, Federal government is saying, you know, it's not entirely a blunt instrument. They tried to table tailor it, but I see they're also acknowledging that it will disproportionately affect Ontario and British Columbia. That's the destination of choice for a lot of international students. And I think you're right, Simi, that the province uh, probably could have headed some of this off with an agreement to tackle the problem of these pri the private colleges, the degree mills, the diploma mills that are out there that really aren't doing what is wanted on this. They are simply destinations where people abuse the system. Right. Now, there's some flexibility here, right? This doesn't apply to graduate degrees, graduate programs. Yeah. It doesn't apply to high school uh, students either, because we know school districts have international students too. Yeah. No, that's true. And, you know, and as I said, I think the federal government has heard some of the pushback and has tried to tailor what they're doing. But the message from BC last week, when this uh, was first floated, that they were getting ready to do this, when the federal government admitted the system had gotten out of control, 
BC was, look, hey, consult with us first. We run the education system at the provincial level. Talk to us. Don't just do this unilaterally. And clearly, unless they had some very lively, thorough consultations over the weekend, it looks as if Ottawa's ignored that and just gone ahead and done it. And Simi, as you know, the province has had NDP government, even though it's sympathetic with Ottawa on a lot of things, there's been a lot of back and forth on the issue, not just of international students, but the surge in immigrants. Again, the federal government has very ambitious immigration levels. Many, many of the immigrants disproportionately end up in British Columbia. And the province has been saying, if you're going to allow all these people in and, and they don't oppose it, the province supports it. If you're going to say this is going to happen, you should tailor your funding for things like housing to the provinces that get the most immigrants, because immigrants and international students both are putting pressure on the housing situation, whether it's rental or buying. So, but again, I don't see a lot of signs, Simi, that Ottawa's listening. It, 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 I mean, it tends not to listen to provinces like British Columbia, which are seen as not central Canada, so there's a lot of resentment out here and has been over the years with all political ideology. But you'd think, you know, with the NDP federally being a partner in keeping the Trudeau government in office, that you'd see more signs mm. that they actually listen to the NDP government in B.C. You would think. You would think with an election on the horizon where the race is so tight in B.C. that they would listen, but they do not. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Sammy. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun talking about the impact here in B.C. on the federal government's announcement this morning, a bit of a surprise one, that they will temporarily cap the number of international study visas that the federal government issues. And it is quite a cut that they are making, quite a reduction, actually. According to Immigration Minister Mark Miller, the cap is expected to result in approximately 364,000 approved study permits uh, over, you know, each year for the next two years, that is down 35% from 2023. So that is a big hit. Now, some provinces have different levels of student intake, as the minister pointed out. So the cap means that some provinces can increase the number they get and some will have to cut. For instance, Ontario uh, takes in a lot of international students. Ontario is going to have to dramatically cut intake by half by about 50% based on these new numbers. So uh, that is a big deal. What the, pro- what the federal government has said to the provinces is you need to better control the schools that are issuing these international study permits. Sure, some of them are like legit post-secondary institutions. Some are diploma mills, as Vaughn pointed out. And so they want to see you know tougher regulations on that. But this will be quite a juggle for a lot of institutions finding out this morning that for the next two years, the federal government has drastically cut the number of international student visas that they are allowing, uh, cutting it by 35%. This is Mornings with Simi. Medical assistance in dying, or MAID, is a touchy subject all on its own, and MAID for people who are suffering solely from mental illness is arguably even touchier. 
The existing legislation requires people who wish to access medical assistance in dying to meet a number of eligibility criteria, including but not limited to having a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. As of right now, this excludes mental illness, but in March of this year, that all could change. I spoke with Alex Muir, chair of the Metro Vancouver chapter of Dying with Dignity Canada, an organization that advocates for Canadians' end-of-life rights and helps people navigate their end-of-life journey. And Alex helped me understand the legal evolution of MAID in Canada. The original legislation back in June of 2016 was limited to people whose death was reasonably foreseeable. The court said, you know, you can't discriminate against those people. And so that's why the legislation was changed in March of 2021. But one of the exclusions that they established at that time is they said we are not going to allow this for people whose sole underlying medical condition is a mental illness because we don't think we're ready and we need to develop criteria and safeguards to figure out exactly how that would work and so that's when they established a two-year sunset clause which expired in March of 2023 but as they got close to that date, they said, no, we're not ready, so we're going to push it out another year. Now the sunset clause expires in March of 2024. I asked Alex what the position of dying with dignity is on the issue of MAID being accessible by people solely suffering from mental illness. We believe that, that it should go ahead. And there's been a ton of work done in the last year. There was a new model practice standard with an accompanying document called Advice to the Profession, which was published in March of 2023. And then the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers, called CAMAP, they completed a Canadian made curriculum. It's the first nationally accredited comprehensive and bilingual education program that supports the process and the practice of made in Canada. And there's a specific module in there to address mental disorder as a sole underlying medical condition. This has been disseminated across Canada, so there's been a lot of work done to make sure that everyone's aware of what the safeguards are and how these, these situations should be assessed. There are plenty of safeguards and limitations for accessing more invasive mental health treatments like deep brain stimulation or therapeutic doses of psychedelics. So I have an easy time believing that access to MAID won't be simple, so to speak. But the Sunset Clause's impending possible expiry this spring has reopened the debate on whether or not medical assistance in dying in case of mental illness should be accessible at all. The two main arguments that I've heard from psychiatrists, the ones who are opposed, is that this issue about irremediability, they're saying that the argument is you can't say that about a psychiatric uh, condition, but it's, that is completely irremediable. And I guess our rebuttal to that is that what I think has gotten lost in this whole discussion is I think people are getting the impression that if, if this legislation goes ahead, that people can just kind of walk in and say, I have a mental illness, I want to access MAID. And that's, that's not how it works. There are some very strict guidelines. That the target group are people who have been suffering for years or decades. They've tried all these treatments and nothing has relieved their suffering. Someone who has, you know, temporary depression, you know, w would not meet the criteria. I think that's what's misunderstood by, by a lot of people. It's not expected that very many people will meet eligibility requirements. And there's an argument to be made that maybe the problem isn't the expansion of medical assistance in dying, but the lack of other supports. 
we agree that the government should also be focused on all these, uh, like, improving supports for people, and, and not just for, for, for mental health. You know, you've probably heard the stories about people wanting to access MAID because they, they don't have the right social supports, and that they, they will not qualify on that basis. But those are issues that, should, you know, that the government needs to look at. We need to help people make their lives better. No matter where you sit on the issue of MAID, I think we can get behind making more supports available for people who are struggling with mental illness. If you or someone you know is in an urgent mental health crisis, you can call or text 988 Or to connect to a mental health professional one-on-one, text the word wellness to 741-741. For the Health Series, I'm Jerry Mayer Judson. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we're going to talk about housing. And in the city of Vancouver, there is, you know, a lot of talk about getting developments done and, and kind of buildings built. And yet in some areas, it seems to be kind of slow, right? Just not happening. Look at the Little Mountain development. 15 years, nothing. With the city arguing with the developer, Holborn Properties, about the pace of things. Well, that same developer, actually, also owns a building called Dunsmere House downtown that is the center of discussion about why it has been empty for the last 10 years. So what is going on here? Well, Jen St. Denis has been writing about this, civic reporter for the Taiyi.ca, who joins us now. Jen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. What is Dunsmere House? So Dunsmere House, it's a really recognizable building in downtown Vancouver. Um, If you've spent any time down there, especially if you've been around the library kind of area, um, it's it's right at Dunsmere and, oh, geez, the cross street. It's either Homer or... Um, Seymour, I think. So it's it's got these three kind of pillars. Um, or it's three like blocks that are connected on the bottom. So it's it's sort of brown brick and it's really massive. It almost takes up like a kind of a quarter of the block. Okay, and it has been empty for quite some time. Why is that? Yeah, well, the uh, the story is that um, it was used as you know, first of all, it was a fancy hotel when it was first built in 1907. Um, and then like a lot of buildings kind of went through like a war, the war period in World War II, where it was actually used for war purposes to actually house merchant seamen. Um, and then in 1949, though, the uh, government who owned it at the time um, sold it to the Salvation Army. And so for five decades, it was sort of this really important part of Vancouver's social safety net. It provided housing for um, specifically for single men. And it did that really continuously for five decades. But by the end of the 90s, um, the Salvation Army, you know, obviously the building was aging at that point, um, and they actually wanted to sell it. And they wanted to build a new building, Belkin House, which is sort of a few blocks away now, and it's a new building that's um, owned by the Salvation Army. And so they ended up selling it to, first of all, um, this couple, uh, Jeff and Tanya Hughes, who owned a bunch of other SROs. And uh, they ran it as a student hostel for a while, like a a hostel for kind of international students just for a few years. But then in 2006, it was sold again to Holborn. And they're known as the developer that, as you mentioned, owns a little mountain site. They're also known in Vancouver for building the what was called um, the Trump Hotel Vancouver, which I'm sure you remember all the controversy about that. Um, And so it's kind of confusing, though, like why it, it was briefly like leased by BC Housing to house homeless people in 2009. That ended in 2013. The building was in just such rough shape at that time that they just couldn't continue to do that. 
and it just obviously they were just leasing it so it wasn't really didn't make sense to fix it up because they didn't own the building and so since 2013 it has just been completely vacant and boarded up um and holborn says that they've been trying to go back and forth with the city with redevelopment plans but the city has just not really been it sounds like the city's just not been satisfied with what they've been submitting so then why doesn't like something like the empty homes tax apply to this yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, yeah, in uh, 2018, the city did try to levy the, op- the empty homes tax against Dunsmuir, uh, or against Holborn. And that's kind of like the, home- the empty homes tax is, first of all, it's to discourage people just holding like their condos vacant, um, just as like a, um, you know, get them back into the housing stock. But another thing it's supposed to do is encourage people to develop their properties in a timely manner and not just sit on them and do what some people refer to as land banking, which is just like wait for the for the value of the property to rise. So the city did try this. They tried to levy the empty home tax against, um, against Holborn. But uh, Holborn argued in court that the city had changed the zoning to allow only um, commercial use in this one specific area. And that after the building was left vacant for, um, you know, a six months period after that, the empty homes tax could no longer apply. And it seems as though either the court agreed with that or the city just decided that they that they probably weren't going to win. And they actually set that aside. So in the meantime, then nothing happens here, even though there is this kind of desperate need for housing, for places for people to go. You've got this big building there. Yeah, it's it's really sad. And I think actually when I this is part of our I wrote about this as part of our monthly place detective series where we just once a month, we just do this fun thing where we like look and look at a mysterious place and it can kind of be anywhere in BC. And people had actually written to me when I first started this series and said, hey, can you look into this? And there was more than one person. So it's obviously obviously lots of people in the city kind of look at it and go, geez, what is going on with that building? It has that weird sign on it that says student housing. Yeah. And it obviously hasn't been student housing for a very long time. And so my story just kind of goes into like, yeah, it's not, it wasn't really student housing. It was, it was housing for poor people. And, um, you know, as Wendy Peterson, the SRO housing advocate points out in my story, um, there have been lots of times when people have real estate developers and owners have sort of speculated on poor people's homes. And she points out that that really kind of puts strain on the whole housing system in downtown Vancouver, um, where a lot of people rely on these, on these SRO rooms for housing. And what kind of response have you gotten from asking about this with this piece? Well, I haven't really gotten a lot of response from the city or anything, uh, but it's it's been like a really, it's been one of our better performing stories in this series. Um, we've gotten, you know, a lot of people sharing it on social media and saying, thanks for looking into this. Cause it is a very, we do, we do, we do like investigate. We like act like <laughs> little, little detectives when we do these stories. And so people kind of get the full story of this story and there's some incredibly colorful stories. So um, yeah, definitely check it out. If you like reading about local history, I and you're also just curious about this building. I um, <laughs> yeah. All of the above. Jen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. That's Jen St. Denise, civic reporter for the Taiyi.ca, writing about the Dunsmuir House. It's a building downtown. You've probably seen it. You've walked by it. It's quite unique looking. You're like, oh, this is kind of a cool building. Why hasn't anything been done with it? It's been 10 years that it's been sitting there empty. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you know what forensic genealogy is? I mean, it's what caught the Golden State Killer, essentially. It's where law enforcement investigators search a family tree to match DNA to a suspect. 
It's become a pretty popular investigative technique. We've heard more and more about it. But its recent use in a local murder case involving the death of a young teenage girl in Burnaby has brought up some questions. Undercover police allegedly employed kind of covert tactics such as disguising themselves as tea marketers and giving away free samples to try and collect DNA from a larger group so they could narrow down their search for a suspect. I mean, was that ethical? I mean, it's a little different than having a DNA sample and then submitting it to a website. So what is going on here? We're we're having more kind of ethical questions about using this particular tool. So we thought we would talk about that now with the help of Dr. Nicole Navrosky, who's an assistant professor and forensic geneticist at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So tell me, what did you think about this case from out here in BC where they're, they, they kind of did things a little bit differently when it comes to genetic genealogy? So in, in one sense, I feel like they didn't. So if we look at what investigators did in BC, it's much the same as what happened actually in the Golden State Killer case, is that surreptitious DNA collection. And while there are a lot of conversations right now happening around whether or not that's okay, it really comes down to a a jurisdictional legislation component. So whether or not investigators actually have uh, the legal right to collect samples in that way. When it comes to the DNA side of genetic genealogy and utilizing that DNA information in order to generate a potential lead, much of that was processed in in what we're seeing on all of these other cases. So the DNA was collected. It was outsourced to a private company. Uh, a genetic testing was performed. A genealogical component was conducted in order to build out potential relationships and identify a person of interest and then that information given back to investigators to pursue the lead. See, my feeling on that was these are free samples. Nobody was forcing people to take those free samples. So they didn't have to take them. Then they wouldn't have given up their DNA. Yeah, it does. It does get a little bit murky, I would say. At the end of the day, though, I don't necessarily have a strong opinion as to what is right and wrong with regard to the sample collection as I am a true proponent of believing in the law and if they were abiding by the law then then unfortunately it's just a consequence of circumstance but uh, we rely sometimes on the acquisition of surreptitious samples in order to develop those investigative leads but again that's really going to be jurisdictionally specific. How popular has this become as an investigative technique? Oh I would say that it's on the forefront of all conversations in forensic genetics and probably on the forefront of most conversations for investigators, especially those who pursue cold cases or violent crime. We're seeing it all across the globe. We're seeing consortiums being formed. We're seeing different people coming to the table to have unique conversations about how to move both the science forward, how to move the investigative process forward. And we're really seeing an increase in collaboration at the international level, which I think is very profound and substantial and will hopefully get us to the point where we have a really robust system in place to serve the public. And I do remember the first time we heard about this when the Golden State case kind of became very well known, you know, six years ago, whatever that was. And there were all these questions about whether or not it was ethical because, hey, people aren't submitting their 
DNA to the site for that. Have they overcome those particular legal ethical issues? I think that's a really, really great question. So you're right. Back in 2018, 2019, when this first use of investigative applications of the databases started, there was a lot of confusion. So people thought if they used 23andMe or Ancestry.com that the private companies who they paid their money to were disclosing information. But what actually was happening was that upload to GEDmatch, which was at the time a public database. Now GEDmatch is privately owned, but there is a huge disclosure and any individual who is uploading their sample has the choice to opt in, which allows for investigative searching or opt out where they are not having their samples searched for investigative purposes. So that transparency in terms of genetic privacy or however we want to look at it is now on the forefront consent page when you're first uploading your sample. And when there was that, um, initial strong reaction, all samples were opted out, and then every single person had to manually go in and re-opt in if they wanted to stay in that searchable database by investigators. And what I find so interesting about that, Dr. Navrosky, is that it's still working, right? It's not like everybody is opting out. People are clearly choosing to allow this. Yeah. So what's really interesting about human nature is inherently most, if not all of us, are good people on the inside. Um, and so we want to help. We want to contribute beneficially to society. And so there's that almost that philosophy where if your family member actually did something bad, that's on them. That's not on you. And then you want to contribute to solving crime, to making the world a better place. And so I think that's why we see that continued increase in public samples going into the database for searching is is that innate desire to want to do good and to help. How do you see this evolving then? What, what is the next frontier of this? So in my opinion, where I see this evolving is into those public labs. So we have a handful of public labs in Canada. We have obviously hundreds in the United States and worldwide. But that migration away from potentially just using the private labs that are more for hire into the public labs where you're already submitting that casework evidence. So the casework evidence will go through that traditional workflow. Maybe it comes up with not a strong result. And then within that forensic lab, they can pursue alternate chemistries or alternate approaches, genetic genealogy being one of those approaches to potentially solve the case. And then it's all maintained right there in the lab. They can disseminate a report and then it it goes right back to the investigator's prosecution the way a traditional case would be processed. And I think that that's going to be something we're going to see a lot of over the next five to 10 years is that onboarding and that validation of labs bringing that back in-house so that they can serve their local communities more immediately. Right. All right. These cases, so fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Nicole Navrosky, who's an assistant professor and forensic geneticist at the University of Toronto, talking about the ethical issues surrounding using genetic genealogy as an investigative practice, which, as you heard her say, pretty much all police forces do these days. And they're kind of breaking new ground, as we heard with that Ibrahim Ali uh, murder case trial uh, right here in B.C., raising lots of questions, too. Very interesting discussion.